home was going to build. All of that was simply an artist's rendering of what was to come, and the reality came in Christ. And I think it's helpful as we go through a study like Hebrews to occasionally go back to the beginning. And so if you have it in your Bibles, or perhaps you can read it on the screen, let's go back to the very first verse of the book. So chapter 1 and verse number 1. And we're going to be reminded where we've started with all of this. And it begins the same way the Bible begins, with God. But it says, who at sundry times, in a diverse manner, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And to be clear, whom he had appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged himself our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, many of us, I think as we read that, we get it very quickly. We understand this is Jesus. He's different. He's superior. He's greater than all of these other figures. But the reality is, for those who are reading this, they needed that encouragement. They needed to be reminded exactly who Jesus is. Maybe in some surprising ways, we need that reminder as well. Lest we look to traditions or religion or people who might be influences in our life to take the place that only Christ can, can take and, and to be who Jesus only can be. He talks not only about Moses then in the next chapters and about Aaron and about Joshua and about these different figures and how Jesus is uh, greater than these, but now he is uh, he's, he's relating how Jesus is a priest, that Jesus is our great high priest, and how he fulfills that in a remarkable way where he lays down the sacrifice once and for all, the sacrifice of, of himself, and he's beginning to explain all of this, but he takes time to make a digression. He pauses. And this pause, which is from chapter 6, verse 4, uh, and as we've been looking at, uh, all the way through chapter 6 into verse number 7, is a, is a sobering pause. It's a parenthesis. And it's, 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 it takes our attention. It requires us giving it some thought. It's, uh, it's a serious warning. We talked about how uh, last week that uh, the, spiritual, uh, the spiritual infancy is a concern. Of the writer, that these Christians are spiritual babies, as it were, but they have failed to thrive and they're being encouraged to grow. And now he's going to warn them about something we might call apostasy. There's a warning about falling away. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. This audience that he's writing to seems to be composed of three groups. That's what Dr. Spencer had mentioned as he. A little bit earlier on, I think in chapter 2, he said something like this. It's very insightful, and that's where we're going to use it. I think I even have it written down word for word. You might have to confer with him afterwards. But he described three different types of Jewish believers, as it were, who are maybe listening to this message. Part of the group to whom the writer of Hebrews is concerned about and is writing to. And the first group would be uh, those who uh, are on the fence. They are aware and familiar with the things of Jesus. They've heard the gospel, but they're coming from a Jewish tradition and those religious systems, and they're not sure quite what to think. They haven't quite committed in terms of their relationship with Christ and their faith. Some of the events, two is some lost as a goose, and then three are some saved. So there are some who are 
are away from Christ. There are some who are in this middle ground where they're contemplating these things. And then there are some who are Christians. Now, the question is raised here about all of this. Um, is it possible for these Jews who have been converted and are following Christ, can these Jews lose their salvation? Is it possible for them to profess faith in Christ and be Christian and following Jesus? And then we have a warning here that they will, will lose out of somehow that gift of eternal life in which they've already become uh, inheritors of in Christ. And the, the answer is that the Scripture, as we look at it, uh, has a very, clear, a very clear message about this. It's quite clear that to be in Christ is to not have condemnation. To be in Christ means we have eternal life. We inherit what Christ provides for us in the cross. And so for those who are placed, as Paul often says, in Christ, they become new creatures. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation in Christ and that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So there's something very powerful and very secure about being in Christ. And the New Testament is very, very clear about all of that. In fact, in John chapter 10, Jesus has a whole set of conversations about it. He talks about that there's a, a sheepfold as if like a stone wall around a courtyard where all the sheep might go in to be safe at night. And there's a, there's a door into that sheepfold and that to climb in any other way would be to be a thief or a robber. And then he goes on to say in that same chapter, in chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. He said, you can come in and you're going to be part of my fold. And he says, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, he said, there's one fold and one shepherd, and they will all be given eternal life. Jesus knows his sheep. He laid down his life as, a, as an innocent lamb for his sheep. He's the good shepherd, and he cares for us, and we as Christians know him. And so we trust in him. It's there where Jesus says, no one can pluck, pluck them from my hand. And in fact, no one can pluck them from my Father's hand. He's greater than all. And so we're as secure as one could be. In fact, some have said it this way. If we could lose our salvation, we would lose our salvation. If our salvation in any way relied on our own goodness, our own works, our own justification, then we wouldn't need Christ. We wouldn't need the sacrifice of Christ. We wouldn't be poor in spirit as Jesus preaches on the Sermon on the Mount, so that we lay aside our righteousness and receive the righteousness of Christ. We lay aside our sin and receive His forgiveness. And so our salvation is due to the fact that God loves you and Jesus died for you, and not because of anything you can do on your own to merit that. And so losing our salvation or jumping outside of that salvation is not described as a reality in, there, in, in the Scriptures. And so even when we look at the great chapters where it lists heroes of the faith in chapter number 11, it lists all sorts of men and women and how they followed the Lord and how they had great faith. It's important to realize that the characters we're going to learn about when we get to chapter 11, they had faith and they're being identified for their faith, but they were all very much imperfect people. No matter who you pick on that list, we can look at their life and we can look at the scriptures and we can see that these, these individuals, some of them have very dark sides where they, they tripped up and they had problems in their life. 
And so we learn it wasn't the perfection of their faith. It's not the quantity of their faith. It's the object of their faith. They had genuine faith in Christ. And chapter 12 is going to tell us who's the author of the faith, who's the finisher of the faith. It wasn't any of those men or women who are listed. It's Jesus. When you trust in Christ, when you hope in Christ, your salvation is secure because you're trusting in him. That's why someone like a thief, a robber, perhaps a murderer could be crucified next to Jesus and have lived his whole life, it would seem, as a, as a criminal, as someone who wasn't good for society. No one's complaining that he was somehow falsely accused. And so he's paying for his life, ultimately for his life of debauchery or whatever else is going on. But he could recognize who Jesus was and say, for, for, I mean, up to the last few minutes, he was ridiculing Jesus just as the other thief was. But in that last breath, he repents and he looks to Christ. He says, remember me. And Jesus takes the time to say, I will. In fact, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's really profound. Well, if you're one of those categories, right? If you're lost as a goose, well, the geese had better wake up. They're on the wrong track altogether. They're outside of Christ, and they need to come to repentance. And those who may be in the sound of the voice of this message at that time when it was written, and even today, need to get woken up. They need to get their attention that they have got to have Christ or they have nothing. And then there may be some of those on the fence. Well, they need to get over the fence. They need to climb over. They need to make a decision. And they have to understand that Simply, simply identifying loosely with Christianity or simply identifying with Christ, the profession, if it doesn't come from the heart, if there's no genuine faith, it's a dangerous thing. And so there is the danger of falling. And it seems that this group, the group that's on the fence, is in mind here. We're going to look into the warning in just a moment here, but it seems like it's not intended for a tender-hearted Christian who might be anxious about their security in Christ, or they have an extra tender conscience or propensity to be troubled about difficulties and dangers, and so they are concerned about that security in Christ. It doesn't seem to be written to them. It seems to be written to those who have not progressed in their faith beyond what we can best understand as spiritual infancy. They're not growing. They don't seem to have a desire to grow. And ultimately, the possibility is that they'll reject Christ altogether. They'll wander so far away that they can be categorized as apostates. A professing Christian who doesn't grow, who has no desire to grow, who's become complacent or lazy or just moving from one idea to the other, that individual needs to take very careful notice of this. And this might be the most severe warning of all of the New Testament in this area. And so let's look at it together. We see, first of all, a dangerous situation described. And we see, we'll look at it in three ways. We'll see, first, a genuine confrontation with the gospel in verses 4 and 5, a deliberate rejection of the gospel in verses 6 through 8, and then a sober lesson regarding the gospel. Notice first this 
confrontation with the gospel that exists. We see it in verse 4, that they were enlightened. It says it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Well, to be enlightened can describe one that has come to the light of the gospel and been converted. Jesus is described as the light of the world, and we understand that he is the light of the world, and we can come to him, and uh, he, 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 can, he can give us light and life and quicken us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's possible, isn't it, to see the light, to be aware of the light, to have the light expose some things to our, to our eyes and yet reject it. And there are some examples of this in the Scripture, examples of those who uh, assuredly were as aware of whatever the light of God and the gospel could be, they saw it. And, and the example that comes to mind most clearly is Judas Iscariot. We have an individual who was called by Christ to follow him, and he follows Jesus, and he does so for months and years. And as Jesus is teaching, he's there. As Jesus feeds the 5,000, he's there. As he heals, he's there. As he preaches the sermon on the mount, he's there. On the plain, he's there. As he tells the parables, he's there. As he sends out the disciples to heal and cast out devils and demons, he's there. He's a part of it all. And the night he's going to be betrayed. He has the 12 gathered in the room. They're celebrating the Passover. And he is explaining that someone was going to betray him. And, and none of the 12 knew who it was going to be. Is it I? Who is it? They, 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 they looked around. They, they had no understanding or idea that it would be Judas, especially. Of course, he's identified and he leaves the room and they continue with the, the, the communion and Lord's Supper and all of that and then go out to the garden. But he's already off on his way now. He had already planned this all out. He had already gotten the money. He was already set to do the betrayal. And of course, it won't be very long before he's, he's dead. At the very moment when you think you can't get any closer to the cross of Christ or the resurrection or to the gospel than Judas did, he's an example of someone who was aware of the light. The light had come into the world. And it's like John chapter 3 says, when Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus about being born again, he talks about how uh, that God so loved the world, but he says light is coming to the world, but, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so it really is an interesting question. Are, what's, is something going to hold you back from coming into the light and, and accepting Christ and embracing Christ? Well, these individuals, he says it's impossible for those who are once enlightened. They, they are exposed to the light. And it also says that they've tasted. Uh, it says in verse 4, they tasted of the heavenly gift. And so if, if, if light is something you see, taste is something you, you taste. And, and so as it says in Psalms 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. So whoever these are, it, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. They've, they've tasted of the good word of God, it says in verse 5. They've tasted of the powers of the world to come. And so they have some experience with this. The heavenly gift, what, what is that? What is the heavenly gift? Well, it's the gospel. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about what Jesus accomplished. He's talking about the path of salvation provided in Christ and the cross. Thanks be to God for his 
undescribable gift. And so we have here someone who has tasted, they have uh, at some level uh, had contact with uh, this, this idea of the gospel, and they've tasted the good word of God. They've heard the good word of God. They've heard it concerning the provision of Christ out of the Old Testament scriptures and through the preaching of the gospel, the path of salvation. They've heard of God's love for the world. And so they had some spiritual experience. Perhaps some of them had experienced something like the preaching at Pentecost where Peter preaches and there's the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in clubs of fire. And, and, and perhaps they experienced some of the preaching of someone like Paul who traveled around as a missionary preaching the gospel or others like Apollos or Barnabas or any of these uh, early missionaries. They had, they had tasted of it. And having tasted of it, there was something about it that they that they they were entered into at some level. But is it possible to taste it and then then going into it, they realize that maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this is, there are reasons to reject it. We have an interesting story about this in Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. There's just, Acts is a a narrative of how the early church began and how the gospel moved. And just because we read it, doesn't mean it's a, a pattern to follow. It's a description of what happened, and uh, it's really amazing and remarkable. But if we read in Acts chapter 8, we see an interesting character named Simon, or Simeon. Acts chapter 8 and verse 9, we have a, 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 a man here. This is Philip. He's in the city of Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. Uh, They were listening. There were miracles. Uh, Demons were being cast out, unclean spirits, verse 7. But in verse 9, it says, There was a certain man named Simon who was before time in the same city, used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. And so he had a following. People got his attention because here he was, Mr. Powerful, and he could could do some things that were uh, supernatural, at least apparently supernatural to the people who were observing him. And they gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him him they had regard, because that for a long time he had bewitched them with sorcery. So he had a lot of reverence for his closeness to God, apparent, although it wasn't genuine. His power didn't come from God. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Then Simon himself believes also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So he's carried along with the the others, and he's even baptized, and he professes faith in Christ. Verse 14, and when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. So this is really amazing that even Samaritans are being uh, allowed into the family of God in Christ. And then verse 17, then they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Ghost, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Repent thereof of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Well, we don't know a lot more about Simon. We just know that something was wrong with his heart. And whether he was saved and just terribly off in his mind and his understanding of the things of God or, or perhaps was just carried along and made a profession of faith but hadn't understood what it meant to belong to Christ and follow Christ and was just wanting to gain that respect back. It sure seems like he was motivated by money and wanting to get the attention again, which is certainly not something like Christ. Either way, we see a, we see a problem, an issue with someone who who could make a profession of faith, but there was something wrong here in his heart that just, that's reviewed here. There's also a parable, isn't there, that kind of fits this whole idea that Jesus tells. He tells it in Luke. He tells it in Matthew chapter 13. And it's the parable of the sower and the seed. And Jesus is by the seaside, and he's, he's teaching the people, and he says, there's a sower who goes out to sow, and he takes seed, and he, he throws it. I don't know how they exactly did it then, I guess it was a little bit different than we do it today with planters and all of that. But he has a bag, and he takes his hand in the bag, and he, and he tosses out the seed, and he's hoping that that seed will land in a place where it can grow and, and have, have, be fruitful. And so he's sowing the seed, and some of it, for example, falls on the wayside, and it, doesn't, it can't go anywhere, and the birds quickly come, and they have their, their breakfast, and they eat it all. And then some of the seed falls on stony ground, and it, there's not a lot of earth, but what will happen, you know, between the little bit of the dirt it has and the, and the, and the dew, it, it'll actually grow, and it'll begin to turn green, and something will happen there. But the sun begins to come up, and very soon it's completely withered away. It, it had a sign of life, but it had no roots. It didn't have enough earth, and it is just withered up. It's completely gone. And Jesus explains to the disciples later that this particular group, that seed which is on stony ground, it's someone who hears the word, receives it with joy, but after some difficulty or tribulation or persecution, he's offended and he's gone because there's no real root there. He's not rooted in Christ. He's not, there's, nothing substan- subs- there's nothing real there. And it's a warning. It's a warning to those who might profess or have an inkling or taste something, uh, but there's a difference between that profession or tasting and a genuine heart, reliance, trust, commitment to Christ in a a serious way. And so there was genuine confrontation. There was light that was seen. There was the word of the gospel that was tasted, and there was the Holy Spirit that was uh, experience. It says they were partakers. So they, they, they had the light, they were enlightened, they, um, they, they tasted the Word of God, and they were partakers of the Holy Ghost. God's Spirit spoke to them. There was some experience of the Holy Spirit, some conviction of, of their position, of their sin, of the truth and verity of, of Christ and the gospel, but it didn't have any, any root. So then we see a deliberate rejection of the gospel. It says in verse 4, it is impossible for those, and then in verse 6, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. 
seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. After they have experienced everything we just read, the enlightened, the tasting, the experiencing, they decisively fall away. They apostatize. They reject Christ. They reject the things of Christ. Even having experienced that full awareness of the gospel, they reject Christ. It says it's impossible for them to renew them again unto repentance. Impossible. Well, it's not impossible for them to be saved. With God, nothing is impossible, right? Even rich men can can come into the kingdom and, and, and God can do remarkable things, but if someone is going to refuse Christ definitively, then there's no other way for them to get to heaven. There's no other path. There's no, what else are they going to get besides Christ? What other light are they going to have than the light of the gospel uh, through the word empowered by the Holy Spirit? There may be some who look for a sign, right? But Jesus said, I'll give you the signs you need. But to those Jewish leaders who were looking for yet another sign, he said, you'll have the sign, you'll have the cross, you'll have all of that. There are some who say, well, it's, it's unfair that there's only one way to the Father through Christ. There should be a few of them. Maybe there should be ten of them. But the reality is, if there were ten paths to the Father, we would probably insist on eleven. The provision is paved. The, the way is paved. There's a path to salvation in God to every person who believes, Jew or Gentile, and it's through Christ. And it was upon him that the whole sin of the world was laid. And so it's not impossible for them to be saved, but it's impossible to renew them unto repentance because of the hardness of their heart. There was a song we would sing sometimes when I was younger, and it goes like this. I won't sing it, but I'll share with you the words. It went like this, one door and only one, and yet its sides are two. Inside and outside, on which side are you? There is a, a, a way of salvation, and it's in Christ, and that is the way. There's an exclusivity to, to the Father, and it's through Christ. It must be the way of salvation. And so to re-crucify him, well, he was already crucified. He won't be crucified again. We look back at the cross. We look at the provision of Christ. We're not going to continue this all along. It, he was crucified once and for all, and now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and there, that is the provision. The sacrifice for sin was accomplished once and for all, which we'll look at as we get a little bit later on in Hebrews. This will continue to be unpacked and explored as we continue our studies. Uh, and so we are either in Christ or without Christ. And it, it may cost us everything, but when we are in Christ, we have everything. We have eternal life. Without Christ, truly, we have nothing. And so he gives us an illustration. He gives us an illustration of verse 7 and 8. And the illustration is a little bit like the parable of the sower and the seed. It's in verse 7. It says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. So we have the earth. And we have the type of earth which when it rains, it, it, it takes it in. It doesn't just run off. And as a result of taking in that rain and having had someone to to love the land and to put seed in the land and fertilize it, it, it bears forth fruit. 
and it receives the blessing from God. But verse number eight, it says, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Well, I'm not a gardener. Any times I've attempted it, all I'll say, I don't know what's good land and what's not good land. But evidently, there's some land which just isn't fit to grow anything on. It has some sort of acidity in it or something in it that just, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do, do well. And so it's sort of a waste of time to spend your, your time there and your energy there when there's other places where you could be planting your garden. I, I guess I've driven through Death Valley in California, and I guess that there are places there you just don't want to say, this is where I'm going to do my farming. You're going to be a very skinny farmer and tan. So here we have land that has everything it needs. And it's understandable if land that has no rain doesn't grow anything, right? There's no rain. We understand why it won't grow. But if a land has what it needs, it has sunshine and it has the seed, the seed and, we, and it has the rain, we expect it to grow. We expect something good to come from it, not just thorns and thistles, not just dirt, to exist there year after year after year. 